So we are going to begin our studies through the book of Habakkuk in two weeks. So uh, today we're not jumping into that book yet, but we are going to start the book of Habakkuk, and that'll begin in two Sundays. And the reason for that is I'm not going to be preaching next Sunday. Um, We're going to be having uh, Pastor Ryan's father-in-law, who's a pastor at the church that we came from, coming and sharing God's word next week, and he's a friend of our church and ministry. And so we're looking forward to being blessed through his teaching next week. Um, And we're having him teach because my wife's going to be gone all week this week. And so I am with the kids, and um, I would ask for your prayer as my wife is gone. Pray for me. Pray for me. Now, who am I kidding? Pray for my children. It's their lives that are in danger this week. So, uh, but she's gone all week. And then also this coming Saturday, I have the privilege of officiating uh, Jonathan and Brittany's wedding here at Apostles Church. And so we thought it would be, would be best to have Pastor Mike come next Sunday and bring God's word. So I didn't want to start Habakkuk today and it was like a false start. And then Mike was going to come do something else. And then we restart two weeks from now. So uh, again, Habakkuk starts in two weeks. But what that means is that today I kind of got a freebie. Like, what do I want to preach on? And Pastor Ryan and I were talking about that, and he was sort of saying, like, what's a sermon you would want to give, or what's a passage that's on your heart to share with the church? Maybe share something like that. And I wanted to get into John chapter 3 and take a look at one of my favorite Bible characters. Um, And honestly, he's not usually given as much airtime as he deserves. John the Baptist is an incredible man of faith and an incredible example of godliness, And this is one of my favorite passages in the New Testament. So we're in John chapter 3 today, and we're going to look at someone, John the Baptist, who is truly a great man, and again, a great example for us to learn from. Now, I don't know about you, but as I was growing up, when I would think about a great person, a great woman, or a great man, the sort of things that I would normally associate with them were things like power, or wealth, or fame, or notoriety. These were the things that I believed as a young man that the truly great in our world were made up of. Now, if you would have known me when I was in high school, and you would have even asked, Daniel, what do you want to do when you grow up? Or what do you want to accomplish? Or what do you want to be when you grow up? It would have been along the lines of those three things. Now, in this way, I know I'm not all that different from most people. In fact, if you look at the top 10 Twitter accounts in the world, you'll find people who check all three of those boxes. Here's the top 10 Twitter accounts right now. Number one is Barack Obama with 131 million followers. Number two is Justin Bieber with 114 million. Number three is Katy Perry, 108 million. Number four is Rihanna, 105 million. Number five is Cristiano Ronaldo, 97 million. Number six is Taylor Swift with 90 million. Number seven is Ariana Grande until she deleted her account, but she was at 84 million. Number eight is Lady Gaga with 84 million. Number nine is Ellen with 77 million. And number 10 is Mr. SpaceX himself, Elon Musk with 75 million. Seven celebrities, one athlete, the richest man in the world, and a former president of the United States. I mean, what does that list of the most famous people, the people that everybody follows, what does that list tell you again about who we look to or how we understand who the great ones are among us today? To personalize this, I wonder about you. I wonder how you would personally define greatness. 
What would it look like for you to live a life that was truly great? I wonder what your desires or your goals and ambitions reveal about what you think greatness is comprised of. Now, John the Baptist is fascinating because I'm not the one that's saying that he was a great man. Jesus himself said that John was a great man. In fact, he said even more. Listen to what he said about John the Baptist. Jesus, looking out at the crowds, said this in Luke 7, starting in verse 26. He says, what then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. None is greater than John. Now that statement is incredible for at least two reasons. The first reason is because you got to stop and think about all the other amazing people that Jesus is passing over when he says that John is the greatest to ever be born of a woman. Jesus there in making that statement, he's passing over Abraham, the father of the faith. He's passing over Moses, who was Israel's deliverer and the lawgiver. He's passing over David, who was a man after God's own heart. He's passing over Solomon, who was the wisest man to ever live. He's passing over the great prophets like Elijah, who was filled with power from on high. And he's passing over all of those people. And he's saying, you know what? This is true greatness, this man named John. This statement's also incredible, though, not just because of who Jesus is passing over to make this statement, but it's also incredible because John possessed essentially none of the things that most people usually usually associate with greatness. I mean, where was John's wealth? John was like a broke countryside preacher. He essentially lived in a van down by the river. Where was John's fame or his notoriety? John had this like remote preaching ministry that had a very brief season of popularity and then he was beheaded in his early 30s. So, I mean, from, a, from an earthly or a human perspective, John was just a blip on the radar screen of popularity. What about his power? Well, at best, you could say that this man, John, wielded a short-lived influence over a speck of the earth's population. I mean, outside of like Judea, people nowhere else in the world 2,000 years ago were hearing about a man named John. So again, it's remarkable that Jesus would look at this man and he would say, this man is the greatest person who had lived up to that point. And this man had none of the things that we so often think about when we think of our great people. So here's the question for us to consider this morning. What is it that makes John so great? Why would Jesus say this about John? Now, contrary to what some of you are hoping I'm going to say, the answer is not because he's a Baptist. Took a second for a few of you to get that. What is it that makes John so great? Well, the Bible commentators point to the fact that John had a unique calling or a specific role as the forerunner to the Messiah that set him apart from every other person of significance that came before him. 
And that that kind of unique role that God had given him is where his greatness is found. Now, I certainly don't disagree with that. I think that's definitely true, that because of his proximity to Jesus and his role, he lived a life of greatness. But what I'm asking, and we're going to see in this text in John chapter 3, is this. Are there things that we can learn as we look at the life of John the Baptist, as we look at the, the ministry of John the Baptist, and look at how he lived out his calling that might hint or suggest to us where true greatness and true significance is found? And I think the answer to that question is yes. Where is true greatness found? You know, the disciples of Jesus had an argument about that one time. They argued, which of us is going to be the greatest when Jesus sits on his throne? And here was Jesus' response. This is famous. Mark chapter 10, verse 42. And Jesus called them to him and said, so he says, okay, boys, get over here. Huddle up. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus takes the values of this world, the same values that today's world operates on. The idea is that those who are great are those who are powerful, those who are in charge, those who have the authority, those that everybody else looks up to. It's the Joe Bidens of the world. It's the Elon Musks of the world. It's the Putins of the world. We look at those people and we say they're powerful. They're in authority. They're the great people of the earth. And Jesus takes all of those values that matter to people and he inverts them. And he says, that's not the way it actually works. That's not the way that it works in the kingdom that really matters. God's kingdom. Greatness is not about your power or your influence or your authority over people. Greatness in God's kingdom is in our capacity to humbly serve other people, to put other people's needs ahead of our own. So Jesus is pointing there to a humble others-centeredness as the pathway toward greatness. And John the Baptist certainly possessed that. He had a humble other-centeredness, but that's not all he possessed. And as we look here now at this passage, I think we're going to get some clues as to where John's greatness lies. In the text that Lisa read for us, you need to understand that we're considering now the high point, the apex, the climax of, of John the Baptist's ministry. This is the point when things are going as good as they're ever going to go, and this is the moment of greatest significance in his ministry. Here's the context. We saw it in the first couple of verses. Jesus and his disciples have left Jerusalem and they've gone out to the countryside and they're baptizing people. And at the same time, John and his disciples are baptizing other people. So there are two baptisms that are taking place. You've got Jesus's baptism and you've got John's baptism. And this triggers a discussion in verse 25 between John's disciples and an unnamed Jew over purification or over ceremonial cleansing. Now, we're never told any of the details of that debate or that discussion. But we do find that when it ends, the disciples of John are pretty tweaked. 
And they come back to their leader. Look again at verse 26. And they came to John and they said to him, Rabbi or teacher, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. So somehow this discussion between that Jew who was possibly one of Jesus's disciples and John's disciples reveals to John's disciples that all of the people that used to be with them and used to follow John are now turning and they're starting to follow Jesus. So they say to John, hey, you know the guy that you baptized? You know the guy that you kind of validated and gave a seal of approval to, that guy Jesus? Guess what? Everybody's now going after him and they're abandoning you. Now you can see here from their concern how the disciples of John are defining success and how they're defining greatness. It's about having people follow you. It's about having a a reputation yourself and being esteemed in the eyes of other people. And they actually see Jesus as a threat to their success and to their greatness. Now, I'm glad that you and I don't ever struggle with stuff like this. I'm really, really thankful that you and I don't really care about the opinions of other people, right? I'm so thankful that we don't care to have a following with other people. I think one of the great uses of social media on the last day will be that it's going to reveal how self-centered all of us actually are. So many people just desire more followers, more influence. They want to be better known. I'm also so thankful that we don't get offended when we get overlooked. And somebody else gets the praise that we kind of thought we deserved. I'm so thankful that we don't get tweaked when someone else gets the promotion at work. Or somebody else is given the internship that you had wanted. Or somebody else is asked to do something in ministry at the church that you really wanted to do or thought you were most gifted to do. I'm so thankful we don't ever get bothered by stuff like that, right? Obviously, we are all too often just like John's disciples. I'm all too often just like John's disciples, falling into the temptation to consider the same values that the rest of the world considers as significant and meaningful. So these guys are tweaked essentially because Jesus stole the show. But look at verse 27. Let's see if John bites on their complaint here. John answered, I know, Jesus is terrible, right? Oh, wait, that's not in my translation. Verse 27, John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. This is remarkable. John's disciples come to the leader, and they're tweaked. And in part, they're tweaked for John's reputation, and John's influence, and John's ministry. And they come and they complain to him, and John says... God did it. Like John's not bothered one bit by the fact that Jesus is rising in prominence and he's fading in prominence. He actually credits God with the work. He says, listen, the reason that this is happening, the reason that everyone is now going to Jesus is because God himself is behind it. Now I'll bet that John's disciples did not see that coming. But John, this man of God who we have so much we can learn from, 
is a man who is convinced that at the end of the day, God is sovereign over everything. God controls everything. He knows that whatever influence he has or does not have has passed through the hands of God first. He also knows that whatever influence that Jesus has has come to him from the hand of God. What this means for John and family, what this means for every single one of us is that God has us right where he wants us. We don't have to fight against that. We don't have to resist that. We don't have to get frustrated by that. We can rest and say, God's in control. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it comes down to him from heaven. And this helps John to not get caught up about people's approval. He has God's approval. He's right where God wants him to be. And this is so important because if we ever hope to truly be a humble and lowly person, which according to Jesus is what it looks like to be great in his kingdom, we have to have a healthy belief in God's sovereignty. It is very easy for us to get jealous, for us to envy, for us to get bitter or resentful toward other people when it seems like things are going well in their life. It happens in the church. We can get jealous or we can get frustrated or we can get bitter when somebody else is getting opportunities or is being used in the body of Christ or when somebody else's life just seems to be so blessed. It's easy, again, to be frustrated by that or jealous if we don't anchor our theology in the sovereignty of God. It's easy to say, Lord, I'm here, I'm I'm trying to live my life in obedience before you. I'm offering myself as a living sacrifice to you. I desire to be used by you. How come you don't use me like you use so-and-so? How come they get all of the ministry opportunities? Or how come she gets the perfect boyfriend and I'm stuck over here with my cat? What's up, Lord? Do you not see me? How come these people don't see how gifted or wonderful I am? See, John the Baptist's life from beginning to end was anchored in the sovereignty of God. He knew that his ministry had come from God and therefore he was comfortable in his role. He never wanted to get outside of that. In fact, when we're first introduced to John the Baptist in the gospel of John, back in chapter one, verse six, here's what we read. There was a man sent from God. That's sovereignty talk. There was a man sent from God. And then as we get to this final narrative of his life in the gospel of John, what do we find? More sovereignty talk. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. And so friend, is your life and your ministry, is it being lived out under the banner of God's sovereignty? Do you look at your life? Do you look at the lives of other people around you and say, God is in control of these things. God is in charge of these things. Do you look at your role in your family, your role in the church, your network of friends, your your role in the workplace? Do you look at these things as being sovereignly ordained by God? You ought to. Now, God has each of us right now where he wants us. He's placed you in the family you're in. He's placed you in the church you're in. He's placed you in the workplace that you're in right now. Now, does that mean that we don't ever grow? 
Does that mean that we just stay stagnant? We don't ever change circumstances because now we feel like we're going to get outside of God's will or something? No. But it means that we do not have to be people who despair. We don't ever have to sit and go, I, I can't believe what's going on in my life right now. Or this is unfair or this isn't right or something to that effect. We can say, Lord, right now, you're allowing this to be my station or the place that I'm at. How do you want me to glorify you here? And we can ask ourselves that question in every moment of our lives. And when we realize as a church family that not only are our own lives ordered by God, but the lives of every other person are ordered by God, every other believer, it provides us with the freedom to rejoice over where God has us and rejoice over where God has other people. And we can celebrate what God's doing in other people's lives. Understanding that God is sovereign roots out jealousy and envy, and instead it produces humility. So true greatness in the first place comes from recognizing that God is sovereign over your life. And we see that in this man, John, but that's not all. Look at verse 28 again. John says, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. In other words, John says, guys, you guys bear me witness. You guys remember that I already told you it's not about me. I'm not him. I'm not the Christ. I've already told you that. He's reminding them of what he said back in chapter 1. This is John 1, 19 through 20. It says, and this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. So for John, this whole ministry thing was actually never about him. John never understood himself to be the main attraction. He's always kind of viewed himself as like the, the trailer that just whets your appetite for the main attraction. Or to put it differently, I've used this illustration before. John sees himself as simply a signpost on like a hiking trail that is pointing beyond itself to something amazing, right? When you go hiking on a trail, if it's a marked trail, at times you're going to get to signposts that let you know you're still on the trail. And those signposts are saying you're going the right way. And sometimes they're even letting you know how much further you have to go until you get to the destination, Friends, nobody goes hiking and starts walking and sees a signpost there with an arrow pointing further and stops and goes, this is incredible. Wow. And then turns around and goes back home. Like mission accomplished. Nobody does that. What do you do? You're hiking along and you see a signpost and you just glance at it for a second. Oh, cool. I'm on the right path. And you blow right by it heading toward the thing that you really are after, you know, some beautiful waterfall or some incredible view that you're going to get. So the signpost job is not to say, hey, everybody, stop and stare at me. Look at me. I'm going to blow your mind. I'm going to satisfy you. The signpost job is very specific and very simple. Hey, everybody, just kind of glance over here really quick so I can point you further onto something that will actually blow your mind onto something that is really worthy of your attention and your affection. And this was John the Baptist. I am not the Christ. 
In fact, he would say, I'm just the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make ready the way of the Lord. John saw himself as just a temporary person that you would just glance at and then you'd look beyond and actually see Jesus Christ. He was pointing people beyond himself. And this brings us then to the second point about true greatness. First, it was about recognizing that God is sovereign over your life. Now we learn that true greatness comes from recognizing that your life is not all about you. That the point of your life is not to make much of yourself. And we see this modeled so beautifully in John the Baptist. And this is certainly where so much of his greatness comes from. That he was never living to make it about himself. And to get everybody to praise him and see how wonderful a man he was. A couple of years ago, I was guest lecturing at a, a university. And when the professor had reached out to me and asked if I would do it, he did what people normally do when they invite you. They, he, he said a lot of nice things about me. Hey, I've heard great things about you. I'd love for you to come and speak to our class and teach on, you know, such and such. And, you know, I got that email and I was like, okay, that's cool. I'd love to go to this school and, and speak and minister. So I show up and I and being introduced to the class to give this lecture that I'm about to give. And the professor who had invited me to do this, he's going to introduce me, and he says, hey, class, we're so thankful today. We've got a, a wonderful pastor. His name is Dennis Hopper. <laughs> Sounds like my stage name, huh? Dennis Hopper. And I was like, oh, man, like the balloon of my ego. It's just right here. And he just took a, a needle and just, just popped it right there. Because, I mean, how awkward is that to have to start your lecture by saying, <clears throat> let me properly introduce myself, everybody. It's actually Daniel Hooper. It's like walking shame, you know. Ugh. But it was awesome because it was just such a great reminder. And I laughed about it like five minutes later when I was done. I was like, that's so funny. Because, you know, like in my heart, if I'm being honest with you, it's like, oh, this is awesome that... This professor's asking me to come and lecture to these students. And you're kind of feeling like, you know, you're a little bit of a somebody. And then the Lord's like, you're a nobody. Like, it's totally not about you. The guy doesn't even know your name. That's how lame you are, Daniel. And I was like, that's totally the point. And praise God, because it's not about us. And I think that God is so good and he's so kind at just giving us those reminders. Hopefully they don't have to be that dramatic for all of us. But he just gives us those reminders where somebody just gives you like a, an ego reduction, right? And God's just looking at you saying, do you get it yet? It's not about you. That's not the point of your life. It's not to make much of yourself. Now, John always viewed himself. This is so key. If you read John's story, he always viewed himself in relation to Jesus Christ. He never just thought of himself as his own individual making his own way in the world. His entire identity was connected to how he related to his cousin, <clears throat> excuse me, his cousin, Jesus Christ. Again, as I said earlier, he always saw himself as a signpost who was pointing to the main attraction. And that really is such a difference than I often see in my own heart. I'm sure that you often see in your own heart, if you could be honest. It's so different than, unfortunately, what I think we see among a lot of people who name the name of Christ today. 
where Christ is being leveraged as, a, as just another tool or another means to make a name for ourselves. And how that must grieve the heart of God and must make all of us look so foolish from an internal perspective. We always have to ask ourselves, what are my motives in building this business? What are my motives in trying to have the picture-perfect marriage? What are my motives in getting involved in ministry? Is this about me? Am I trying to fulfill something in here? Or is this about him? Pastor Warren Wearsby, he tells the old story of a pastor in Australia who at one point invited the famous missionary to China, J. Hudson Taylor, he invited him to speak in his pulpit for him. So this Australian pastor invites this famous missionary to come in. And when he did his introduction, unlike this professor at the university, he actually got his name right. But more than that, he constantly used the word great over and over. It's the great missionary, the great man of God. He was using that word constantly. And finally, when J. Hudson Taylor stepped into the pulpit to speak, he made this statement. He said, dear friends, I am the little servant of an illustrious master. How beautiful is that? J. Hudson Taylor was sharing the same spirit of this great man, John the Baptist. I'm just this little signpost, just tiny little servant of an illustrious master. Whatever greatness you might think I have, it's actually not because of me. It's because of the relation that I stand in with Jesus Christ. Now in verse 29, John is going to use an illustration, and it's an illustration of a wedding. But he uses this illustration just to drive his point home even further that his life and his ministry is not about him. Look at verse 29. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. So John now uses this illustration of a wedding ceremony. And he says the one who has the bride is the groom, right? Have you been to a wedding or are you married? Is that not how a wedding works? The one that the bride goes to as she walks down the aisle and is received by is the groom. And John's point here is to his disciples, he's still talking to them, he's saying, look, when you say all the people are now leaving me and they're going to Jesus, it's like the the bride is going to the groom and that's the way that it's supposed to work. All the people are going to Jesus. He has the bride, therefore Jesus is the groom. And notice that John identifies himself as the friend of the groom, kind of like the best man. In other words, I love this about John because John's like, look, I'm actually not the central figure in the illustration I'm giving. I'm just kind of like the sidekick. Jesus is Batman, I'm just Robin at best. So Jesus is the groom in this story, and John here is just the friend of the groom, and yet, here's what's so remarkable. John says, even though that's the arrangement, he's, he's the centerpiece, and I'm just the sidekick, he says, that completes my joy. My joy now is totally complete because Jesus is being made famous, because Jesus is the center of the story. John is seeing the bride go to her husband, And as the best man, he's ecstatic. 
And the reason is because John is seeing the very purpose that God had for his life being fulfilled right before his eyes. If you go back to John chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, listen to the purpose for which God sent John. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. God sent John into the world to bear witness about Jesus so that through his ministry, people would believe in Jesus. Now here's John at the height of his popularity, the height of his ministry with all of his disciples, and he's looking out and he's seeing all the people that he was once reaching, going to Jesus, and he's going, bingo, success. That's what I was created for. This is what God called me to do, is to lead the bride to the groom, and it's happening, and he's thrilled. Now, verse 30, where we're going to end today, is the climax of this bridegroom illustration. Look at verse 30 again. John says, he must increase, but I must decrease. Jesus, the groom, increases. It's his special day. He's made to look great. He's made famous. And he says, I just sort of fade into the background. That's, that's how this is supposed to work out. He increases. I just sort of decrease and fade away into the background. Again, this is what happens at a wedding. There's all this work going into it. And then the day of, it is the groom and the bride who are the focus and who are the center of attention. And if you have a good best man, the best man joyfully fades away into the background at the wedding ceremony. When my wife Erica and I got married, my best man, who was also my brother, rejoiced over my special day. And he rejoiced over the fact that Erica and Daniel were the center of attention. He wasn't bothered by that. He was happy because his concern was for me. And he was making sure that my tie was straight and that my hair was perfect. Use your imagination for that one. But that was his job. I just want to make my brother look great today. This is about him. I want all the eyes are going to be on him. And I want to make sure that he's got everything that he needs and that he's the center of attention. And that's because he's my brother and because he's my friend and because he loves me and he cares about me. And I've never actually talked to him to confirm this, but my assumption is he didn't leave my wedding like super bummed because he wasn't the center of attention. I just don't think that was the case. He left feeling quite fulfilled. Like, look at how stoked my brother is and his new family that he's beginning. This is awesome. That's what it's supposed to look like at a wedding. I mean, can you imagine if your best man or your maid of honor, if, if she or he made the whole day about them? That'd be a disaster. If they were photobombing all of your photos, they're just like jumping in between bride and groom trying to get in all the photos. Or if the best man's speech was like entirely about them and had nothing to say about you, that'd be terrible. And so John, again, he's using this illustration just to work out the logic of his life and his ministry. He must, this isn't like a, an option. He has to increase because he's the groom and therefore I have to decrease and get eyes off of myself. This is the way it's going to go because of who Jesus is. 
And it blows my mind because this, in this moment, you, you see this situation where, where John's fame and his notoriety is now actually being eclipsed by Jesus. And instead of being bummed over this, he's happier than he's ever been. I love that about John. That even those disciples, like so often we do, they, they were seeing this as a threat to themselves somehow. John's looking at this and he is elated that Jesus now is being made much of even at his own expense. And this is because John knows it's not about him. It's all about Jesus. So when we think again today about true greatness, and when we look at a world that we live in that has all of these people posturing to be the great ones, starting wars to be the great ones, dominating other people to be the great ones. As we look at a world that is consumed with those values, I love looking at the Bible and looking at Jesus and looking at what he has to say about true greatness. And what's so beautiful about this is you don't have to be born into the right family. You don't have to have tons of money. You don't have to have power. You have to have a radical encounter with Jesus Christ that is so radical that it just fundamentally alters your heart posture to where you say, you know what? By God's grace, I'm going to start seeing that my entire life is being lived under the sovereignty of God. That my entire life is not all about me. And third and finally, what we just looked at, we need to recognize that my life is all about him. Like we all can do that. We can all live that way with this humble Christ-centeredness, making that the passion of your life, that we would make much of him, that we would want to see Jesus increase through the way that we live as we just decrease. We're just signposts getting attention off of ourselves. For John, it was not just less of me and more of others. It was more of him. It was not just pointing others away from himself, but pointing others toward him. For John, it was, as Francis Chan puts it, recognizing that the point of his life was to point to him. And in doing this, John's joy is complete. Did you catch that? Making much of Jesus is the path to joy. And again, that just runs so counter to everything that the world tries to teach us. Joy is through getting more and having more, and having more people look up to you, and having greater influence and greater power, that's what will satisfy you, is the mantra of the world. And yet, over and over again, we look at our great ones, and joy seems to be the one thing that they can never have. And we look at John, again, a poor country preacher who died in his 30s. And he's able to look at his life and say, my joy is complete totally fulfilled because he knew that he was living out the purpose that God created him for, to make much of Jesus. John's ministry, although unique because of the fact that he was the forerunner to the Messiah, there's a sense in which it's the ministry that every single Christian has, a ministry of making much of Jesus. John was called by God 2,000 years ago to prepare people for the first coming of the Lord. 
You and I are called by the Lord right now to prepare people for the second coming of the Lord. So our, our, our job, our calling right now, again, in a very real sense, is just like John's. That we are to be living our lives right now saying, the, the true groom is coming. He's going to return and he's going to bring the bride to himself. And so we want to get people ready. We want to help people to see that and understand that. We want to just be signposts that do everything in our lives to say to other people, look to Jesus. He's the answer. Look to Jesus. He's the meaning. He's the reason. He's the purpose. And what John's life is teaching us is that to the degree that we get better at doing that, our joy is going to be fulfilled and our purpose will be complete. I love that. Again, that's just so attainable. Now, this does not mean that every single person in this room is going to be in full-time ministry, like a pastor or a missionary or something like that. Some of us are and some of us will be those things. But what it means is that every single one of us have the ministry of helping the world to see that Jesus is great. So we're doing that in all of our different spheres of life right now. We are doing that by stay-at-home moms helping their children to look to Jesus and see that Jesus is the most important. We're doing that by working dads going into the workplace or working moms going into the workplace and pointing people away from themselves and helping people to know who Jesus is. Every single day of our lives, looking to Jesus and pointing people to Jesus. And I wonder this morning, do you rejoice in that? When people see Jesus for who he truly is. When they see that Jesus is the son of God who came to this earth to reconcile broken people back to God. And when people grasp that, is that what you get thrilled about? Is that what motivates you? Is that what gets you out of bed in the morning is seeing your children and your grandchildren and your neighbors and your colleagues and your schoolmates and the people on your sports teams saying yes to Jesus and finding life in him? Is that what your joy is connected to? That's what John's joy was connected to, even though it was at his expense. I've personally been moved by stories this last week of Christians in Ukraine who have decided that even though they could leave the country, they've decided to stay because they look at this right now as an opportunity to make Jesus known and experienced in the middle of a war-torn country. They're looking at all the opportunities that this war is presenting right now to love people, care for people, medically and otherwise. And they're saying, maybe, just maybe, God has us here right now for such a time as this. And what I'm so moved by is that as you read the reports about these Christians or as you watch the videos of them praying and singing, they're not bummed out. They're filled with joy right now. Of course they're afraid. But there's a deep-seated joy because they know that God has them in this moment right now to make much of Jesus. And they rejoice in that. Even though it's at great cost and peril to themselves. So let's close this down. Where is true greatness found? It comes from recognizing that God is sovereign over your life. It comes from recognizing that your life is not all about you 
And lastly, it comes from recognizing that your life is all about Jesus. Or to put it differently, true greatness is humble Christ-centeredness. So let's make this personal. How are you doing with that? Again, is that the aim of your life? Are you looking at your life right now saying, Lord, help me today to make much of Jesus. Help me today to be an instrument, like a signpost, that is pointing people to you. If that's what you're doing, if that's the trajectory that your life is on, awesome. Keep it up because at the end of the day, Jesus's evaluation of your life is going to be, it was a life of significance. But what about, what about if it's not? What if that's not the trajectory that your life's been on? What if as you're honestly looking into your own heart, you're saying, man, I'm like, I'm focused on a whole lot of things, but it's not making Jesus famous. It's not preaching the gospel. It's not seeing people reconciled to God. Friend, I would tell you, I don't care how old you are this morning. It's not too late to alter course. And perhaps the reason why we had a week of just whatever I could preach on, and the reason why you're in church this day is because God just wants to look at you and arrest your attention and say, you get one life, don't waste it. You only get one life, don't waste it. What's going to matter in eternity is not how much money you had, not how many employees you were over, not even how much territory you conquered geopolitically. What is going to matter is whether your life was lived for you or your life was lived for him. And we all get to make a choice about that. And Jesus is letting us know which choice is best. And may I remind all of us that at the end of the day, Jesus' opinion of us is what matters most. In 1 Peter 1.24, Peter writes this amazing sentence. He says, All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. And then he says, The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Translation, every single person, you're here for a moment, just like a flower that springs up and then our life is over. But the word of the Lord and the things that God tells us in his word abide forever. And so the, the wise ones heed his word. And I hope we'll, we'll all do that today. Let's pray.